scripture comes from Mark chapter 9. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him to, in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their, worn, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to NCF. Good to see all of you. Especially want to welcome those of you who may be visiting us for the first time at the invitation of a friend or coworker. Thank you for honoring us with your presence. Would you please bow your heads and join me in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy. Indeed, Lord, it is through your grace and mercy that we sinners find hope, that we're able to once again have our hope in you rekindled, the hope that not only do we have salvation, but we have purpose, we have meaning, and that you will use us for your glory. Father, I ask that you would enable us now to hear everything that you want us to hear. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts in such a way so that we could receive all that it is you want us to receive through the preaching of the word. We ask, Lord, that whatever distracting thoughts, whatever anxieties, whatever fears that we may have brought with us this afternoon, you would banish them away so that we could be fully receptive and we fully receive everything that you have called us to receive on this Lord's Day. Oh, God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's been said that New York City is the greatest city in the world. People say that all the time, right? This is the greatest city in the world. Of course, the reason why they say this is because this city is just saturated with greatness everywhere, right? Every possible category of life is just filled with greatness, right? We have the greatest food. We have the greatest art. We have the greatest sports team, right, David, right? We have the greatest uh, performing arts. We have the greatest entrepreneurs. We have the greatest business uh, people. We have the greatest talent, right? All the best want to come to this city because, after all, we are the greatest. And, of course, the underlying assumption is, is that citizens of this great city, like yourselves, are able to recognize true greatness, right? You are experts in recognizing greatness because that's what you're constantly exposed to. See, that's what they say. And so with that assumption in mind, here's my question to you this afternoon, you experts. Do you recognize true greatness when it pertains to Christianity? As followers of Christ and as New Yorkers, do you know what true Christian greatness is if you saw it right in front of you? Do you know what Christian greatness is? 
We're continuing our sermon series entitled Views of a Healthy Church. And the whole point of this series is to ask ourselves the question, how would a healthy church view the crucial issues pertaining to the Christian faith? Because the underlying assumption is is that the way that a healthy church views these crucial matters is actually the proper way of looking at it. So far in this series, we look at the proper view of Jesus the proper view of the Bible, the proper view of evangelism, the proper view of repentance, and on and on. Well, today, we're going to talk about what is the proper view of Christian greatness. What does the Bible have to say about what greatness looks like in the standpoint of our faith? Well, to help us answer that question, we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 9, where Jesus himself teaches us what greatness is in the eyes of God. But here's what's a little interesting about what Jesus is going to show us in just a moment. True greatness, according to Jesus, is somehow, some way, tied to this idea of welcoming little children? Yeah. Somehow, some way, Jesus is going to show us that how we welcome the little ones is going to show how great we are in the eyes of God. So, with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this afternoon. First, let's talk about the insignificance of little children. The insignificance of little children. Number two, the significance of little children. And finally the savior of little children, the insignificance of little children, the significance of little children, and finally, the savior of little children. Let's jump right in. First, the insignificance of little children. Can we have our passage up there, please? Starting in verse 33 to verse 34, we read the following. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So here we see in those first two verses that the disciples of Jesus were in an argument with one another. And of course, this is not some mild disagreement that you have with friends over something really trivial, right? Like, uh, are the Mets the greatest team on the earth or the Yankees? You know, nothing that superficial, or maybe it's not, right? But you know my point, right? This is not a mild disagreement. No, this is a heated argument that they got into. How do I know this? Because in verse 34, it says that they got into the argument on the way, right? That means the disciples are out traveling on the road, on the outdoors, with all this crazy outdoor noise, as well as in addition to all the fellow travelers that were with them, all talking. And in the midst of all that noise, in the midst of all that chaos... Jesus was able to hear his own disciples in the midst of all that noisiness, his own disciples arguing to the point about who was the greatest. What is the greatest, right? Clearly, the disciples were in a heated, vitriolic argument with one another to the point where it got angry, maybe even volatile, maybe even close at throwing fists. Who knows? And so Jesus gets to the point in his destination in Capernaum, and as they settle into this house, he asks his disciples, hey, guys, what were you guys discussing? It's so kind of Jesus to reduce it to just saying a discussion. But what were you discussing? And, of course, what do they do? They say nothing. They shut their mouths. They're completely quiet. Why? It almost seems they're embarrassed. I'll tell you why. And to explain, let me give you a very silly illustration. Let's say for... For illustrative purposes, let's say you are a Ph.D. student at the highest, best math program in the entire nation, studying under the greatest, most prestigious math professor, okay? And you're having an argument with a fellow classmate of yours, and you cannot agree on what 2 plus 2 equals. You think it's 5, he thinks it's 22, and you can't agree, right? You just fight, no, it's 5, no, it's 22. Like, ah, you're screaming at each other, and lo and behold, your professor runs in. He's like, hey, I can hear you guys across the hall down in my office. What are you guys discussing? Would you ever admit to your professor 
about how, how dumb, I mean, how, how disagreed you are with your fellow classmate? Probably not. Why? Because you should know by now what two plus two is, right? Duh. It's four, by the way. <laughs> the disciples have been walking with Jesus for almost three years, 24-7. They've been together. And for them to yet not get what Christian greatness is, is downright humiliating and downright embarrassing. And when Jesus is aware of the ignorance, the fallible ignorance of his disciples, once again, he sees the need to instruct them what true Christian greatness is. But here's the thing. When Jesus instructs his disciples of what true Christian is, he does it in a way that's completely throwing them off, something they were not expecting him to do. Let's read the passage again, starting in verse 35. It says this, And he, Jesus, sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, or great, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. Here the text tells us, That Jesus, in wanting to instruct his disciples what true Christian greatness is, he takes a little child, which most commentators think was like a little toddler, maybe even a little infant, kind of like that that, that beautiful boy that we just saw in the video. And holding this child, he says to his disciples, look, you want to know what true greatness is, true Christian greatness is? It's this, welcoming this child, loving this child, embracing this child, wanting what's best for this child. Now again, The disciples are utterly confused as Jesus is doing this to teach them about true Christian greatness. Why? Because in the days of the disciples, in the days of the ancient world, excuse me, children were not highly valued in ancient society. Little kids were not really admired. They were not noticed, you know, unlike today where politicians try to get a photo op with a baby that they could kiss just to get their, their numbers up. Back then, people of prominence could care less about kids. They were not attracted to kids. They didn't see it as a photo op opportunity. They didn't see it as an opportunity to get their ranks up in the, uh, in, the, in the status. You know, people of prominence like rabbis and teachers, people like Jesus, hardly paid any attention to kids. In fact, if you ever read some of the ancient sources in the New Testament background about how little children were treated, you'd be utterly shocked. There are crazy stories where parents would literally throw out their unwanted children, which was a very common thing. Literally, they would throw children out in the dump. Or in some cases, they would throw them out into the fields to where they would die of exposure, to where people would record stories of how they would walk by abandoned fields filled with abandoned babies crying out as they're slowly dying. There was one crazy letter written by a man writing to his wife saying, you know, I hope you, you know, paid the bills, you met with so-and-so, you, you took care of this and that. Oh, oh, by the way, I heard you're pregnant. If you happen to have a baby girl, just remember, throw her out, right? That's how crazy it was. That was the culture, that was the context that the disciples came out of where little children were not in any way valued. In fact, quite the opposite. They were devalued. They were not loved. They were despised. They were seen as liabilities, okay? Now, with that said, I am not in any way implying that the disciples themselves hated little kids like the rest of society did. But nevertheless, this was the cultural environment in which they grew up in, which was bound to have an effect on their value system, even at a subconscious level. And sure enough, if you ever read stories in the gospel of how disciples are playing or not playing, interacting with little kids, they are not playing with them. 
They're shunning them away. They're annoyed. They're angry at them. They don't want anything to do with little kids, right? That's a result of the product of the culture in which they grew up in. Now, some of you in here might be tempted to think, well, thank goodness I am not like that, and I don't live in a day and age where children are treated like that. Thank goodness I'm not barbaric, and we're not living in a primitive time like those people back in the days of the disciples, to where you can kind of have a judgmental attitude. But be careful and really ask yourself, are we really better in this day and age towards kids as they were back then? Do you really think little children are better off today than they were back then? Just to give you some statistics to kind of shake you out of that delusion. Did you know that this past year, 2016, there were over 53 million abortions committed worldwide? 53 million abortions were committed worldwide back in 2016. That's more deaths of the people combined with the death of World War I and World War II, okay? More people die through abortions than the people of those two world wars. That's a lot of people. Or how about the growing desire for certain types of illicit pornography? Do you guys know what the second most sought-after pornography there is out there? It's what they call the barely legal pornography. It's basically tantamount to child pornography. That's becoming more and more of a profitable business in the adult entertainment world. And then, of course, you have the growing problem of the sex trade industry where children are literally being kidnapped, taken away from their families to where they're being forced to do evil, disgusting things that no child should be forced to do. And this is not happening in third world countries. This is happening here in America. It's actually happening here in Queens. Do you guys know that our borough, Queens, has the highest percentage of sex trafficking than any other city in America? Yeah, here in Queens. Not New York City, Queens, our borough. I think it's fair to say that no amount of education, no amount of technological advancement, no amount of social culturalization that we have endured and gone through has in any way mitted against the way children are treated. Yes, back then children were treated terribly, but you know what? Children are still being treated terribly today, where we can honestly say that as a society, little children are not welcome in our culture. And yet, even with all this darkness and craziness, it's still hard for us to try and understand what point Jesus is making. We scratch our heads and we say, well, Jesus, what does this idea of welcoming a little child have anything to do when it comes to true greatness in the eyes of God? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point, the significance of little children. Starting in verse 42, Jesus says this word, these words, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Here, Jesus tells the disciples why children are so significant for him. He says it right in the beginning of verse 42 where he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying in that statement? What does he mean by that phrase? Well, again, another silly illustration to get the point across. A story, actually. There was a mom reading a book to her little baby girl, little one-year-old daughter. It was an animal book, pictures of animals. And the mom pointed to a cow, and she said, Honey, what sound does a cow make? And the little girl looked at her mom and said, Moo, right? It's like, oh, very good, sweetie. And then the mom points to a cat. She says, Well, honey, what, what sound does a cat make? And the little girl says, you know, rubbing her hair against her mom's arm like a cat would. And then finally, the 
the mother points to a white duck. And she says, now, honey, what sound does a duck make? And the little child, without any hesitation, looked at her mom and went, Aflac. <laughs> the first thing. Some of you guys have probably anticipated that, right? Children are the most impressionable people of society, right? I mean, why not? They're, that's how they grow. That's how they learn. That's the way they are. They imitate what they see, and they model themselves around the people that they are around. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying here in verse 42. He's basically saying, look, children will imitate what they see, who they see. They will act like those around them, which is why he gives them this dire warning in verse 42. He basically says this, this to the disciples. Look, be careful in how you live your life. Do not live an ungodly life. Do not live a selfish life. Do not live a perverted life. Do not live an arrogant, prideful life. Why? Because the little children will pick up on it, and they too will be led to sin just as you are sinning right now. Listen to what he says that we are to do instead. Starting in verse 43, Jesus says this, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, these verses have been so misunderstood throughout the history of the church. So let me clear it up right now. Jesus is not advocating that we show our devotion to him by literally mutilating our own body. He is not saying that. He's not saying, okay, if you really love me, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye, you know, end up looking like a pirate, right? That's not what he's saying. Jesus is using figurative language here. He's using figurative language to describe the Christian life. And what is the Christian life according to Jesus? According to Christ, the Christian life is a war. Let me say that again. According to Jesus, the Christian life is a war. Let me explain. Whenever two nations went to war with one another and one group of enemies captured the other group of enemies, and if they allowed their enemies to live, right, instead of just killing them, which was the normal practice, you know what they would do? If they allowed their enemy to live, they would cut off their right hand, cut off their right foot, gouge out their right eye. Why would they do that? Why not just throw them into prison? Why would they do that? Because if you cut off a soldier's right hand, What can't they do? They can't pick up a sword, right? Why gouge out a soldier's right eye? Because they can't aim an arrow right at you, right? The cutting off of the right hand, the right foot, and the right eye was how you disabled your enemy and how you conquered your enemy, right? That was how you defeated the enemy. You handicapped them to where they were no longer a threat to you. That's how you dominate your enemy. That's how you destroyed your enemies, Okay? And Jesus uses this imagery of conquering your enemy in this way to describe the Christian life as it pertains to what? Holiness. Living a life of righteousness. Living a godly life. Now, here's the question. Whose hand is the enemy? Whose eye is the enemy that we're to gouge out? Whose hand is the enemy that we're to cut off? Whose hand? Jesus says it's your hand. It's your eye. It's your foot. He doesn't say cut off your enemies. He says cut off your own hand. Cut off your own, gouge out your own eye. What is Jesus teaching us here? Jesus is teaching us that when it comes to living a holy life, your greatest enemy in living that life is yourself. 
The greatest adversary you're going to face in your attempt to live a life of righteousness is the enemy inside of you, okay? And part of what it means of living a holy life is learning how to destroy the dominating power of that sinful side of you, inside of you, that wants to get in your way, that wants to sabotage you, that wants to destroy your attempts of living a holy life. That is what Jesus is saying, that we are our own worst enemy to where if you want to be godly, if you want to be holy, if you want to be ethical and full of integrity, you have to conquer the enemy within. And Jesus is telling us here in this passage that the main reason why you would engage in this inner jihad and this inner holy war within us is so that the people around you, specifically the little children around you, would benefit from it. Just like little children today benefit from the bravery of soldiers who go out into the battlefield and win the war where they benefit from that, so also the little children around us will be benefited when we strive to conquer on the inner battlefield of our hearts where we fight against that sinful side of us that wants to live an ungodly life. And if you think about it, this way of thinking about holiness is so different than the way it's typically thought of in the church. Because let's be honest, in the church, when people talk about living a holy life and striving to be holy, it's always in the context of this attitude of holiness allows a person to lift themselves up, to to show off how superior they are to other people. Am I right? I mean, the church doesn't really have to go out of its way to produce kinds of people who act all holy moly, as a way to platform themselves and say, Yo, look how righteous I am, look how superior I am, look how godly I am, implying you're not as godly as me, right? One of the things that the church is notorious for is producing Christians who use holiness as a way to prop themselves up, to make themselves look good, which also requires making other people look bad, like, oh, you're not as holy as me, you're not as godly, oh, you're such a sinner, right? What is that? That's the holier-than-thou attitude that the world so hates about us sometimes, right? That self-righteous indignation spirit where we think that we are so much superior, morally better than everyone else to where we feel we have the right to just tear people down, right? And Jesus says, that's not the kind of holiness that I am after. That's not the kind of attitude that you you should have. That's not the motivation you should have when you should strive to be holy as my follower. No, Jesus says the opposite. If you are my follower, you should strive to be holy, not so that you can prop yourself up, not so that you could bless yourself, but so that you could bless other people. So that when people see your holiness, they will be inspired, they will be encouraged to live a holy life themselves. So this is not the holier-than-thou attitude. No, this is the holier-for-thou attitude. It's the idea where I want to be holy in such a way to where it doesn't make you feel bad about yourself. It actually encourages you to be holy as I'm striving to be holy. That's the holier-for-thou attitude that God calls us to live out all the time, which is why he says... Christian, be careful how you live your life. Be careful how you live your life before a watching world because if you are not living a certain way, you will curse people to want to live an ungodly life. But if you strive to live holy in the way that I call you to be holy, you can encourage, you can inspire people to be more holy like me. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, some of you are hearing all this and you're thinking, well, Pastor, I like what you're saying, but I have a little bit of a problem to where I don't feel like this is really relevant to me right now. And that is, I don't have kids. 
I don't work with kids, and I'm not usually around kids, so I don't know if this all talk about little children, holier for thou for the sake of the little ones, I don't see how that applies to me. But you know what? The disciples could have said the exact same thing. The disciples were not known to having lots of kids. They weren't really working with kids predominantly throughout their ministry. They weren't really exposed to a lot of kids, right? And yet Jesus finds it necessary to teach them about this very idea when it comes to true greatness. How do you explain that? The only explanation to that is when Jesus was referring to little children, he's not only talking about actual little children. In fact, he's also being figurative as well. You see, there are people in your life who are like little children. They may not be actual little children, but they are like little children in the following ways. First of all, there are people in your life who could be neglected like little children can be neglected, such as the elderly, right? Such as the mentally disabled or the physically disabled. There are people out there who can be helpless like kids can be helpless. We're talking about the poor, the homeless, right? The immigrant, the illegal or legal immigrant. We're talking about people who can be insecure like children, like the depressed and the abused. We're talking about people who can be uh, curious like little children, people who are interested in spiritual things, or people who just became a Christian but don't know much about Christianity. See, it doesn't matter if you are a parent or not. There are people in your life who, compared to them, you are spiritually more knowledgeable, more experienced, and you are more mature than them. And Jesus says, those are the people that you have a responsibility for. Specifically, you have a responsibility to be godly, to be holy in their presence because they are the ones who will benefit the most, who will be influenced the most in a positive way by you living a holy life. And if you think about it, the kinds of categories of people that I just named to you, the poor, the homeless, depressed, the insecure, I mean, that's a lot of people. That's a long list, which means there's... A limitless potential of the kind of influence your godliness, your holiness can have in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in this city, in this world. Do not underestimate the kind of positive impact that our holiness, our growing in righteousness can have in this world. I love how Charles Spurgeon once put it. Listen to what he says here. He says, no doubt innumerable blessings descend upon families and nations through the godly lives and patient sufferings of the saints. We cannot be saved by the merits of others, but beyond all question, we are benefited by their virtues. What's he saying? He's saying that God has called Christians to be holy, but not holier than thou kind of holy, but holier for thou holiness. Where you see your holiness not as a way to serve yourself, to where you make yourself look good, you make yourself look better or superior to everyone else, but instead you use your holiness to make other people look better, to where they become more superior in godliness than they were before. See, So here's my question to you. How are you doing, NCF? How are you doing in living this holier-for-thou life? Well, if you're like most Christians, statistically speaking, in America, you're doing a terrible job, right? We're all doing a terrible job because the fact of the matter is the state of the church in America today is very pitiful to where more and more Christians are looking more like their pagan counterparts rather than their pagan counterparts looking more and more like their Christian counterparts. 
And if there are those among us who are trying to be holy, let's be honest. It's not so that we can have this holier-for-thou attitude. Let's be honest. It's really so that we can have this holier-than-thou attitude, is it not? It's so that we can use our holiness to prop ourselves up, to bless ourselves, to exalt ourselves in such a way where we can say, hey, look at me. You're not as good as me. You're not as righteous as me. I'm better than you. I'm superior than you. Am I right? There are more legalists in the church than there are holy people in the church. That's the fact. That's the stats. And as you're being confronted with this hard, cold truth, the temptation that you may fall into is to think, you know what? I'm doing a terrible job here. I'm not living a holy life. I'm no good for God. And I'm certainly no good for the people around me who would be influenced by my holiness. Maybe I shouldn't even try. Maybe it's pointless. Maybe I don't even attempt to do any of this. Maybe I should just not even try it at all, right? Well, not necessarily. Because, yes, even though it is true that you may be failing in your attempts to be holy or holy for the right reasons, God gives us hope of keep pursuing genuine holiness. And to explain, let me go to my next point, the Savior of little children. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, where it says the following. Although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, this is very odd. It's a very odd statement, specifically about what it says about Jesus in verse 8. It says that Jesus learned obedience. That's a weird statement. And why is that such a weird statement? It's a weird statement because when you learn something, that implies that you didn't know it before you learned it, right? That's the whole idea about learning. It's a process where you acquire something you didn't have, namely knowledge, experience, or whatever, some level of competency. So here's the question. How can Jesus, as God, learn obedience? Because that would seem to imply that there was a time in Jesus' life where he wasn't obedient, which is simply another way of saying that he wasn't who he is, namely the holy God of the universe. How can Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, learn obedience? Obedience. Wouldn't it have been better to say that he knew obedience because he always knew obedience? Does that make sense to you? But ah, here's where you come to understand the wonderful good news of the gospel. Because what the gospel teaches us is that Jesus, yes, as God, he was always holy. There was never a moment where he was not holy, where he was always obedient to his Father above. But Jesus is not just God. What else is he? He's man. At least he became man 2,000 years ago. And when he became a man, he went through the process of growing up where he was exposed to opportunities to sin, but he never sinned. Why? Because he revealed through every opportunity to disobey that at his core, he was the true obedient one to where he was the holy one living out his life. Okay, So when it says that he was learning obedience, he's not saying that he wasn't obedient before, but rather he was showing through all his life that obedience was always in him, that was always in his nature. But you know what? Jesus was learning something as he obeyed. You know what he was learning? He was learning suffering. You see, one of the direct consequences of Jesus' obedient life is that the more he obeyed God, the more he suffered because of it. The more he obeyed God, the more he was humiliated for it. The more he obeyed God, the more people hated him for it, not admired him for it, right? That's what the gospel teaches, that all throughout his life, he obeyed his father. And as he grew, 
the sufferings of this world kept piling upon him more upon more upon more sufferings until it ultimately led to his utter humiliating death on the cross, which, pers- which came right after him being abandoned by the Father on the cross, right? Here's the question. Why would Jesus strive to live a holy life when it would result in him suffering and being humiliated to where it would end in his death? Would it be so that he could be exalted? No, he wasn't exalted. His holiness led to his humiliation. Would it be so that people would look up to him? No. His obedient life led to people looking down on him, seeing nothing more as a criminal, a criminal worse than Barabbas, the worst criminal of the time, right? Clearly, Jesus lived a holy life to no benefit to himself, not as a way to exalt him, not as a way to to bless himself, right? You could argue that Jesus lived a holy life to where it resulted in him being cursed, being rejected, being humiliated, being hated upon. Which means what? The only reason why Jesus lived a holy life wasn't so that it would benefit him and bless himself, but so that it would benefit you and it would bless you. Jesus is the ultimate holier-for-thou person, where he saw his holiness as the primary way of blessing you and me. That is what his holiness was about. His holiness wasn't to say, I'm the best holy person in all the world. I'm the most superior person. No. He lived a holy life for your sake so that you would be blessed, so that you would be benefited. And you know what benefits that we get from Jesus' holy life? You know them, right? Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the power to live a holy life. One of the most precious blessings that Jesus' holy life gives us is that it enables us a desire and the ability to live a holy life. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 10, in verse 10. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. You hear what it's saying? It's saying that one of the primary, motive, one of the primary goals of Jesus' death on the cross is not only that you'd be forgiven, not only that you would have eternal life, but through his holiness, you would become holy holy, to where you would accept his holier-for-thou love, and that love would change you, inspire you, to where you are willing to cut off that right hand, gouge out that right eye, metaphorically speaking, to where you are willing to do battle against yourself, to where you're willing to say no to your deepest urges and desires, so that you could be like the one who loved you with that holier-for-thou You see, one of the primary means that you know that you are truly a child of God is that it creates in you a deeper hunger, a deeper thirst of loving this God by striving to be holy like he is holy. And that's good news. You know why that's good news? It's good news so that when you struggle with sin and sometimes you fail, you don't have to be like, oh, man, I fall into sin again, you know. And you just wallow in this guilt and shame for days, for weeks, for months, to where you just spiral into this mental black hole and you're so discouraged. No. When you fall into sin, and you will, you can be reminded that this desire for you to be more holy will come to fruition. Because Jesus said, that's one of the benefits that comes when you embrace me as Lord and Savior. You will become holy like I am. I, who started a good work in you, will complete it on the day of my return. You know, Paul says of Jesus in Philippians. God is at work in you right now, Christian, so that even though you're not as holy as you wish you could be, you're going to get there. Which means 
You don't have to be overly discouraged. You don't have to be overly pessimistic, overly dubious against yourself into thinking, oh, this is pointless trying to live a holy life. No. If you cling to the hope that God loves you, that he loves you with a holier-for-thou love, you're going to get there, which means you can get back up and you keep striving of living that life of godliness that God has called us to live. Why? Look at what it says. Our mission to bless the world through men and women who grow up in the gospel. What's the first category of growth that we strive for? Godliness. Because we know that when we live a holy, godly life, the little children around us, whether you talk about literal little children or figurative little children, the people whom God has brought in your life to where your holiness would impact them, you will impact them in a positive way, in a way that blesses this city, your family, your workplace, your neighborhood. So this is where you need to be reminded and encouraged, Christian. Live a life of holiness. And when the setback comes, remember there is grace, but also remember there is still power being at work in you that is not yet complete. So that you can strive to live the kind of holy life that God wants you to live so that you can collaterally bless those around you. Whether it be your little siblings, whether it be your son, your daughter, whether it be your coworker, your neighbor, your friends. Here's my challenge to you. Christian, have you strived to live this holy life? Have you strived to be faithful in this task of blessing the world through your holiness? So that through your holiness, more and more people will be inspired and encouraged to live that life that you are living out before them. As you take more and more on the beautiful gospel love God has given you. My prayer for us as a church is that we would never be accused of being holier-than-thou Christians. That's like the worst insult that we can ever receive because you know what that means? We are not great. True Christian greatness is when we strive to be holy, but specifically holier-for-thou Christians, where we see our holiness not as a way to put people down, but to lift them up, to where we would live a life of holiness that would serve others around us, not make them feel like they are our servants. Do you see the difference? I pray that you do. Would you join me now in bowing your heads for just a moment? And I want to give you an opportunity to just respond in prayer 